So uh, today is our last sermon in the Framework series. Um, I have mixed feelings about being done with the Framework series. I'll be honest with you. I'm going to miss Matt's structure here, and I'm going to miss seeing this thing. I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, But on the other hand, we get our table back. Jen and I get our table back. So uh, we have mixed feelings. You know, we get our table back, but we're going to miss the... There's a lot of reasons why I have mixed feelings about the series. I mean, this series... It's a helpful series on one level that's really important, is that it teaches us what the Word has to say about all sorts of things in our life. And we need to learn what the Word has to say about God's design for all sorts of things in our life. On the other hand, it's also, I mean, who wants to talk about just the laws and the principles? You want to talk about like the heart of God and the mission and the purpose and the vision and all that stuff too, you know? And um, hopefully throughout this series, we've understood that uh, God's framework is not absent of all of those things. It's not absent of his heart. It's not absent of his vision. As a matter of fact, his vision is very much for us to enjoy a wonderful family life inside of his family with him as the father. And the framework, the principles of how he has designed our world and our lives to work are all about creating the right kind of environment for us to experience that relationship with him and that engagement with the world. And, And that's been a good thing. Now, it's definitely time for the series to end. Last week, Josh talked about intimacy and and sexuality, you know, and God's design for that. And he said something. He said, if this doesn't make you squirm in your seat, I don't know what will. And I thought, wait till next week, you know, Uh, because today we're talking about God's design for alcohol. And that's, uh, so we've been going, uh, you know, we talked about money, about time, about all sorts of things. And now we're getting to the things that are the real sensitive issues. And I I don't know what the trajectory is if you keep going from here, you know, like uh, intimacy last week and then and then alcohol this week, where, where does it go from here? So it's time to just cut it off, you know? It's time to be done with this series after this one. This is a bit of a sensitive issue. And um, there's, uh, there's a lot of differences of opinion in the interpretation of Scripture and how we go after Scripture when it comes to this topic. I just want you to know that we have one one aim in, in this message, and that's to accurately represent the scriptures. That's it. This isn't, there's no, this isn't about opinions or about, it's not even about the fears or about the dangers. We're going to talk about that stuff, but this, but this is about scripture. That's what we want it to be. We teach scripture. That's, we allow the scriptures to speak for itself, hopefully. Now, there has to be people who interpret scriptures, and that's the job of the preacher right now, um, but you know, uh, I'm not the only one who interprets Scripture, and I don't always get it right. So what I would encourage you to do is I would encourage you to take out a pen and paper and write down the references of the things that, uh, that we're talking about today and study them on your own. And if you have questions, come and talk to me, you know, or talk to any of the other elders and, uh, about, about how we interpret those Scriptures. There is, in, there's a wealth of, of references in the Scripture regarding alcohol, Tons and tons of references, hundreds of them. And um, it's for us to take the time to go through every passage is not feasible on a Sunday morning. So you're going to have to trust me that what I tried to do here is to take a survey of the different passages throughout Scripture that represent the, the full conversation of alcohol in Scripture. 
And that's what I really try to do in this message. Instead of saying, this is what we think, and then trying to get passages to, to support that. Instead, it's like, what do the scriptures say? Let's get the full gamut of it. And then after that, talk about what we think that means, okay? And so that's really how we go after it. There's going to be a lot more scripture in this. We're going to go through a lot more, uh, many more passages of scripture than we normally would. Most of the time, you're getting a lot more of me explaining. This time, you're getting a lot more of actually reading the text because it's, we need to do that in this passage, in this uh, topic. Uh, so that's what we're going to do, okay? And, uh, and I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer before we get started. God, your word is truth, and you say that the truth, if we know the truth, the truth will set us free. And we're in a place where we need freedom. Uh, There's all sorts of bondage all around us. There's bondage of false doctrine. There's bondage of self-indulgence. There's bondage of of, uh, immorality. There's bondage of deception. There's all sorts of bondage that, that holds us back from living within the full design of what you have for our lives. And the last thing we want is to be led astray by, uh, by things other than the truth. We want the truth and we believe that you're big enough within the truth to be able to uh, usher our lives exactly where they need to be. So we ask that today, God, you wouldn't tell us what we want to hear. You wouldn't tell us just what we need to hear. You would tell us exactly what is true. And that from that, God, your Holy Spirit would interpret into each of our lives what it is that we specifically need to hear from that truth. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 14 is the first place we're going to start. Um, And again, we're going to be going through passage after passage here for the first part of this. So Deuteronomy 14, 22. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all your field's produce each year. I'm going to stop after the first verse already and just say this. This is, you know, Deuteronomy, the first five books is the Torah. This is about God's giving the law and he's describing to the Israelites how they should live. This passage in particular is talking about a tithe, about giving of the resources. We talked about tithing in God's design for money. And this is with our resources, we're told to give of things back to God. He's specifically talking here about how we tithe. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all of your field's produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine, and oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. So what he's saying is, there's going to be a place that I'm going to set up where I'm going to put my name. And what that means is that's the temple mount. There's going to be a place where the temple will be. And at that place, I want you to take the the tenth of all of your produce, everything I give you, and I want you to go and take it right down in front of the temple here in Jerusalem. And I want you to enjoy it in the presence, uh, in, in my presence. It'll teach you to revere me. The first meal that you have with this food, have it with me. That's what he's saying. The first meal, the first tenth of all, come down and have it with me. Have your meal with me at the temple. And you see he says grain and, and new wine, and he talks about the, the cattle and all of that. Now listen, it keeps going. Verse 24, but if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord, your God, and cannot carry the tithe because the place where the Lord, your God, will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Okay, so he's saying, if you live up in Galilee and you can't make it all the way down to Jerusalem and he's blessed you with so much stuff, you can't take a tenth of it down to the temple, that's fine. Sell the stuff that would be the tenth of the first things you get, take the money and then head down there. Okay, then what does he tell him to do? Verse 25, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, 
wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites living in the towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. So what he says is sell all the stuff up there, come down, you have the the first tenth of everything you have, now go and buy this stuff so that you can enjoy in the presence of God. Among those things that he talks about enjoying are obviously wine, and he says other fermented drinks. This is a, it, it actually shows a picture here of God's design for alcohol initially in the interaction with the Israelites in his presence before him at the temple. Okay, that is what it is. It's a picture of the Old Testament, a scripture. It's God's word. It says what it is. Turn to Isaiah. We want to look at another one. Remember, we're just doing a survey and looking at all these different angles on alcohol. Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate. The mansions will be left without occupants. A 10-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine and a homer of seed only an ephah of grain. Woe to those who rise up early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Their men of rank will die of hunger and their masses will be parched with thirst. Therefore, the grave enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth without limit and into it will descend their nobles and their masses with all the brawlers and the revelers. So man will be brought low and every mankind and mankind humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the holy God will show himself by righteousness. The sheep will gaze as in their own pasture, and lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with a cart, as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so we may see it, let it approach. Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as the tongues of fire lick up straw and as dry grass sinks down into the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers will blow away like dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the Holy One of Israel. Wow. (laughs) Okay, that was heavy and long. Um, So what's going on here, obviously, is that there's a, there's a situation where the people are completely self-indulgent, right? Building house after house. The things that, are, that God has said are evil, they're saying, no, they're actually pretty good. You know, and they flipped what's good for what's evil. They're masters at mixing drinks and, and they've refined the, the art of drinking wine. And they know, they, they get up early looking forward to the next drink and they stay up late inflamed with wine. And, and, and part of what you see in this whole picture of him talking about self-indulgence that leads to an oblivion of not, not being in, in contact with God and not being dedicated to God. Part of the, the picture you see, the metaphor you see is him talking about how 
how they deal with things of self-indulgence, how they deal with money, how they deal with alcohol. And, and the picture is they've been, they've been consumed with it. They've become experts in all the things of self-indulgence, you know? And wine and alcohol are one of the pictures of it. You know, heroes at drinking wine. Uh, what's it mean to be a hero at drinking wine? That means at the frat party, you're the guy. You know, I guess that what it, that's, that's what it means. Um, it also means that, that I, I'm so refined in my understanding of alcohol, it becomes, it becomes a big deal. It becomes a big deal because I'm, I'm really into, like, you know, know, knowing what I'm consuming and, and all of the, uh, you know, all of the wonders of it and being caught up in it because we get into a self-consuming mindset. That's the picture here in Isaiah where people are oblivious. They've stopped following the law of the Lord. John. Chapter 2, another one. You can't talk about alcohol without dealing with this one. How many of you envy my position today, by the way, having to talk about alcohol? Uh, yeah, okay. Just wondering. John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. I love that. All she does is she looks at him and she says, they don't have any more wine. He's like, yeah. You know, right? And, but I love Jesus' response. His response is perfect. This is one of my favorite responses of Jesus in the entire scriptures. Dear woman, why do you involve me? I love that. You know, he's like, why are you getting me in this? Like 2,000 years later in a discussion about wine at Parker Ford Church, Jesus is probably still up in heaven asking, why did she involve me in this thing? Um, not really. Um, it's Jesus. He's a lot bigger than that. But um, I, I love his response again. He's like, my time has not yet come. I, there's a point in here. We're not going to get into it. That takes us down a whole nother topic. Um, his mother, <laughs> her response is every bit as good. His mother said to the servants, she doesn't address him anymore. When he says, why are you involving me? It's not my time. He did, she doesn't even look at him. She just looks at the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you to do. That's her, say, saying, what, that's her way of saying, whatever, do whatever he tells you to do. Your time has come, I'm your mother, you know? And you might be the son of God and all. You might be God incarnate, but I'm still your mother, you know? And um, nearby stood six stone water jars, kind, the kind used for, by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Okay, 20 to six times 20 to 30, we're looking at 120 to 180, right? So that's... That's a lot of gallons, 120 to 180 gallons. So, uh, yeah, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Where would that come from? He did not realize where it had come from. There you go. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he, called to the bridegroom, he called the bri- then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Now, this is one of those passages that's been interpreted in different ways. Um, the, the, the translation here, this word, the, the Greek word underneath of wine, is, is a word that has a little bit of leeway. And I've heard people translate uh, this to, to mean grape juice. However, there's no, no translation that I know of that translates it as grape juice. They translate it as wine. 
And there's a reason for that. Uh, because it's the same word that's used consistently all throughout the New Testament that says, don't get drunk on grape juice, you know? And it doesn't work. And uh, th- now, so this is, it can be used both ways. And that's not, it's just a general reading of the scripture will get you to think they've had too much to drink. If they've had too much to drink, we're talking about wine and that type of thing. So, and Jesus, the general reading of this thing, it looks like Jesus is making wine. Now, there's a reason what, when I interpret the scriptures, and you see, look at this where it says the, the last thing in verse 11. Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory. The purpose of Jesus doing the miraculous is always what? It's to reveal his glory and to turn people to faith in him. So it says that, that he reveals his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So this is a miraculous moment, right? He changes the actual structure, the elements of what's in this thing. It was water, and now all of a sudden it's wine. He changes the element itself, which is miraculous enough. But what's more, and this is where you, when you get to see the miraculous in Scripture, one of the things that helps us is to see just how incredible Jesus is. And when you think about what makes this the special wine, the fine wine, it's, it's the thing that's fermented, right? The one that's like the aged wine. And what you get here is Jesus is not only messing with the element itself, it's time he's dealing with. You know how much time it gets to get the good aged wine? And he's doing it like this, and all of a sudden you have this aged wine. And, and it's just mind-boggling, not just that he can change the actual structure of this thing, but he can like accelerate something that just happens like that. And at the end, what you don't see is people are like, sweet, you know, Jesus made wine, let's get blasted. You know, that's not what happens. What happens is, is they're like, oh my goodness, did you see what he just did? And they turn to Jesus and they put their faith in Jesus and he receives glory. You see, it's not about the wine, it's about Jesus. And the story is not about whether or not we drink wine. The, the, the story is not about the appropriateness of wine. That's not what this story is about. What the story is about and what our lives are about is about glory to Jesus. That's what it's about. Okay, and if we look at this passage and see it for something other than that, then we're missing the main point of the passage. Okay, the main point of the passage is that Jesus is unbelievable. He's phenomenal. He's spectacular. And if you look at what he just did, it's crazy cool, okay? It's unbelievable what he just did. And that's what's amazing about the passage, okay? Leave it for what it is. Don't try to make it what it is. Don't try to make it what it isn't. Leave it for what it is. And then turn to Romans chapter 14. Now, this one needs a little bit of background for you to understand what we're dealing with here, okay? This is Paul talking about What Paul's talking about here is food sacrificed to idols. This was the big controversial issue of the day, okay? Uh, Alcohol, there there was obviously a little bit of controversy in it because he's going to equate it in this passage. He's going to equate alcohol with food sacrificed to idols real briefly, which is why I selected this passage about food sacrificed to idols. We had to talk about food sacrificed to idols in the scriptures because in their day, that was the big hot topic of controversy. And so what do you do when there's this controversial topic that might not be as black and white as everyone wishes it was in scripture? And so a big conversation around it. And you see them dealing with this issue over and over again in the early church in, in in the scriptures here. And so we need to talk about that in order to understand this issue of alcohol in our day. The reason I picked Romans chapter 14 is because he also has a moment in here where he equates it with alcohol, which is helpful to us. The the metaphor is obvious. It's not the only passage where it's dealt with. It's dealt all over the place. In Corinthians, it's the passage where he says, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. 
You know? And it's, it, that's the conversation around this thing. Now listen. Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 12. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Hear that? Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. I just want to say that one more time just for the effect of it, okay? Each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's quite a statement. Therefore, let us stop passing on judgment let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in your brother's way. See what he's saying is each one of us is going to be brought to judgment. What's helpful now? Is it helpful for me to go and to judge another person or to condemn them? What's more helpful is for me to not help that brother stumble because if they stumble, they're going to have to stand in judgment before God. So I've got to be really careful about not causing someone else to stumble because they're going to have to be held accountable in the presence of God for their own actions. Verse 14, As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. I just want to stop there for a second. The issue for the, for the, with the meat sacrifice to idols went like this. If you want to go and get meat at the, at the store, and this meat, they took the bull and they took it in front of an idol and they, and they sacrificed it in front of an idol. Then they go and they take the meat out and they take it to the market and they put the market out. Now the question was, they're like, can I eat that meat? Because they just took that up in front of the idol and they sacrificed it. I don't know if there's something weird that happened there. Like, is this spiritual, like if I like consume this now, does that thing have power over me? And that was the real question about it, that type of thing. You just heard Paul say, listen, it's clean. It's clean. As far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm a person who walks with Christ. And he's like, as far as I'm concerned, that meat, it's clean. He's the one who creates the cattle. You know, it doesn't, whatever. This thing doesn't have any real power. It's an idol. It's not legit. It can't do anything. It's clean. You can eat it, you know. But this is what he says. If someone's conscience is violated because of it, and they go to eat it, then it's going to mess them up inside. And he says, and what's more is, is if what I'm doing affects them negatively, then I'm actually destroying the work of Christ. It says Christ died for them. Why did Christ die for them? To set them free. What did he set them free from? From a guilty conscience. You see, this is the whole deal. This cross that we celebrate all the time is where Jesus dies on the cross because our hearts condemn us. We're told that our hearts condemn us because of what we've done. And when we have a heart that condemns us, who are we thinking about? We're thinking about ourselves. The point of the gospel is to get us to think about God and to get us to think about each other. If we're in a place of condemnation and guilt, we're thinking about ourselves. And then we end up doing all sorts of things to satisfy the emptiness within us. So if a person has a guilty conscience and it's panging on them and they can't get rid of this sense of condemnation, then the gospel isn't working in their life. And so with that in mind, I'll continue to read it. I don't even, where am I? Verse 15, I think. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Verse 16. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Remember the Holy Spirit there, okay? Almost every time that this thing of alcohol comes up, so does this thing of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, okay? 
Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Therefore, I don't know why I just said therefore. That's not there. Oh, there, here it comes. Let us therefore. There we go. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. So here it comes, verse 21. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So if you're putting, your, if you're putting this person in jeopardy, it's better not to even deal with it. Because why would we deal with it? When the kingdom of God is about joy and peace and mutual edification, not about eating and drinking. You know, so if, I'm, if there's a question and I'm putting someone in jeopardy, why would I, would I deal with this? Uh, verse 22. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. I love this. When I, when I heard that, the first time I read that, so whatever you believe about this, keep between yourself and God. And I'm like, so then why am I preaching on this? You know? And then I'm like, wait a minute, why is Paul talking about it in the scripture? It's something we obviously need to talk about. But when it comes to how we personally deal with this, there's a personal issue to it that's important. It's important because of how this affects the community. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because he is eating not from faith. This last phrase is very, very important to hear, so tune in. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. Is truth relative? No, it's not. Truth is what it is. But the truth here is not a truth about the line around the meat sacrificed to idols. The truth is about what's going on in my heart. That's the truth. You notice how he says, for a person who wants to eat the, the food sacrificed to idols, who knows that it's clean, and they do that in the privacy of their home, that's fine, and they can do that, and they should do it in the presence of God and enjoy it with God. But over here, the person whose heart is being condemned in the middle of it, it's actually sin because they're not in a place of faith where they're relying and depending on God. They're actually fracturing relationship with God. The definition of sin is that which separates us from God. And if this thing is causing separation in my heart from God, there's a major problem. What's more is, is if I'm doing something that's helping separate someone else from God, I'm also sinning, also not done in faith. You see how this works? The line that he's drawing, a clear line, has to do with where my heart is in relationship to God. That's what the line is here. Where I'm at in relationship to God when it comes to eating of meat sacrificed to idols, and he even mentions here in drinking wine. One last passage, Ephesians 5. starting in verse 15. Be careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Okay, so what he's saying is the days are evil, time's short, there's stuff all around us that's going to distract us. You need to make the most of every opportunity and embrace life for what it is. God has given us this gift. Grab a hold of it. Be ready and alert and use it for everything it's worth. Be on the mark. Understand what God's will is. Be ready. And then what does he say in verse 18? Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. There it is again. 
Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God, the Father, for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, now listen. There's a juxtaposition here. One is drunkenness on wine. The other is what? Don't be drunk with wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. In the last passage, it, talked again, it kind of showed that juxtaposition again. Over here is drunkenness. And what's drunkenness lead to? What's that word it says? Debauchery. I love that word, debauchery. It's like you don't even have to know what it means. It just, it, you can feel it from the word, you know, debauchery. And um, debauchery, basically, what it turns out to be is it's like how we treat each other if we're drunk, okay? When we're drunk, the way we would interact with each other that's debauchery. The inappropriate way that we deal with other people and don't respect, it leads to to all sorts of stuff. I don't have to name it all. You know the the type of thing it can lead to. Over here, then it says, be filled with the Spirit. Filled, is that word filled and drunk? Very similar. Filled with the Spirit. Be full, be drunk on the Holy Spirit. You know? And if you are, that leads to another way of dealing with each other, which is we encourage one another with psalms and with hymns and with spiritual songs. Now this is, I love this picture because over here is the picture of, you know what happens when someone gets blessed and it's like, it's just not okay and the way they're interacting, making a fool of themselves, doing things they shouldn't do that they'll regret in the morning. And over here is a person who's completely lit on the Holy Spirit, you know, just, and, and, and just loving God and the Holy Spirit's filling them and they start doing things that are just crazy. It says, speak to one another in songs. So next time, next time you say to me, you're having a rough day, I'm going to go, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And you're going to be like, you are so drunk. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and that's the way it's going to work. Um, and this is what it talks about. It, it's like the way that the Holy Spirit should consume our lives is, is in a way that just makes us look weird to everyone around. Because when the Holy Spirit fills us, it causes us to do things and interact in a way that's incredibly peculiar to the world around us. Because it's bizarre. It's not, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of peace and of joy. It's not a matter of what we eat or what we don't eat or what we drink or what we don't drink. It's about how well we influence and love and edify each other toward Christ. That's what the kingdom of God is actually all about. And what you notice is in these passages over and over again. First, back, back in Deuteronomy when it talks about the priests and, and, and the people bringing their tithe down to God and, and having this meal in front of God, including wine or fermented drink. It's not about the wine. It's not about the drink. It's not about the grain. It's not about the food. It's about being in the presence of God. When it comes to the Isaiah passage and it says your masters are mixing drinks and you get drunk and you forget everything, the point isn't about whether they're drinking or not. It's about the fact that they've completely gone oblivion when it comes to understanding God. They're missing God. They're not about God anymore. When it comes to Jesus and he's making the wine, it's, it's, it's not about whether or not he's making wine or what it is he's making. It's about the fact that Jesus is spectacular and people are turning to him in faith. When it comes to Romans, it's not about whether or not you're allowed to or not allowed to. It's about are we moving more toward Christ and am I helping others move toward Christ? And when it comes toward Ephesians, it's not about whether I can drink or not. What it's about is, is am I being filled with the Holy Spirit and edifying the other person? And far too often what begins to happen is we begin to define what Christianity is based on what we can or can't do instead of defining it on our Savior. Jesus and who he is and how he can fill our lives and change our world 
and change our community. So why is this thing a big topic? Why is it such the, the sensitive topic it is? You know? Why is it that, that it's, not, it's not just sensitive? I mean, like, dr- drunkenness? Like, it's no brain obvious from Scripture. Being drunk is not okay. Not okay. You know? <laughs> Scriptures are crystal clear. But when it comes to complete and total abstinence from alcohol or, or whether it touches our lips or anything, why, why is it such a, a big topic? Why is it this big deal? Why is it so sensitive? There's some real simple answers to that. One is because many of us have experienced the absolute devastation that alcohol can bring in our lives. Some of us personally. Some of us because of family members. Some of us because of friends. I mean, the amount of money that's been lost because of alcohol. The amount of relationships that have been ruined because of the consumption of alcohol. You know, the, the, the abuse that's taken place, you know, all in light of alcohol. We've seen the effects of alcohol used inappropriately and what it does to people. And so because of that, it's a, it's a very sensitive issue, you know? Not only that, because of that, you know, the whole prohibition thing took place where we're like, why even bother with it? Let's just get it out of here, you know? And so there's a whole prohibition political movement started at first as a religious movement, then turned into a political movement, then turned back into a theology of how we interpret scripture, you know? And then taught to people over and over again of the theology of prohibition. Anyway, (laughs) what it gets to back to with us is it gets to a place where for some in American evangelicalism, what happens is, is whether or not a drop of alcohol touches our tongue or not becomes almost a piece of orthodoxy, like whether or not Jesus died on the cross. You know? It becomes like that big of an issue about whether it touches us or not. But really, when it comes down to how the Scriptures talk about alcohol, that's not the way it talks about alcohol. It, talks about, it only talks about it in relation to God. Like, what's it doing to our relationship with God? Is it drawing us away from God or not? Are we focused on Him and is it drawing us into it? So it becomes this big issue, but we might say, very wisely perhaps, if it has the potential to cause these issues, if it has the potential to do this to the relationships, if it has the potential to hurt my brothers and sisters in Christ, if it has the potential to mess up a family, I I don't know what it could do, but if it has the potential, why even bother with it? You know, why bother with it? And you might say that in your life, and you might be very, very wise for saying it. You know, um, Bill Hybels, you might have heard of Bill Hybels. He's a pretty uh, well-known pastor in, in the States. He's out in the suburbs of Chicago at Willow Creek Church, and um, he does these leadership seminars all the time and stuff like that. And one of his teachings, as he was doing a teaching to pastors, he talked about uh, your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And he's like, you know, God gives you this body to use. And your life, he gives you a certain amount of years to use it. And he's like, there's studies done. And this was, he, he, it was a while ago for him. But at the time, he had heard these studies that were done that said, what, however you eat in your 30s will determine what happens to your heart in your 60s. And you're, you are more affected in your, in, uh, in your 60s by what you eat in your 30s than you are by what you eat in your 60s. And, and more than what you eat in your 40s and 50s. I don't know if that's still legit, but that's what the study he had, he had read. And so he's like, 
It was a wake-up call because he's like, all I ever did was pound cheeseburgers. And he's like, I had a great metabolism, and so I didn't have to worry about it. I was in good shape, so to speak. But he's like, I was just pounding food that I shouldn't have been pounding all the time. And he's like, but then when it was kind of a wake-up call to me. Like, if I just give myself junk, even if I'm staying fit or whatever, it's ca- it may be causing damage down the road for me. And he's like, so I decided to get into a, a plan where I'm making an investment for the kingdom of God. It's important for me, for my family, for my church, that I'm healthy. And so I'm going to start start now changing my diet. And the first thing that he decided to do was he said he'd completely cut sweets out of his life. He'd never have another dessert. And he said, I'm not going to have desserts anymore. I'm done with dessert. He's like, I got to draw some hard lines. He's like, I don't want life to be complicated for me and for me to have to think about it all the time. I just want to make this simple and easy because he's like, desserts are great. They taste wonderful. He's like, you know what's better is my family and my church and all the things that can happen if I live long. So he's like, I don't feel like dealing with it. So I'm just going to say, I'm not doing dessert anymore. I'm done with that. I'm going to exercise every day, once a day, and I'm not going to eat dessert. Okay, I'm done with that. Now let's move on and get back to life. You know, and that's how he dealt with it. Now, That's a kind of a cool thing, isn't it? I mean, on one level, except for the fact that now we can't have dessert, you know, hello. Um, But whatever, for him, it worked out because what he's saying is, is he's like, there's all sorts of blessings that God gives to us. But he's like, dessert? It's a blessing and everything, but that's like this much blessing. He's like, but then there's this much blessing. And I don't want to mess up this much blessing for this much blessing. So he's like, I'll just get rid of that blessing in order to, you know, make it more sure that I get the deeper blessing. That's kind of wisdom in some ways. I'm not saying, but... What would not be wisdom is for Bill Hybels to turn around and try to convince me that the Bible says that you shouldn't eat sweets. That would be false doctrine. That would be a misrepresentation of the scriptures. This is where we find ourselves. This is where we find ourselves in the scriptures around alcohol. Honestly, it's where we find ourselves. And it is a wise, wise thing to be very, very leery about alcohol. Very leery. Because the draw of alcohol is subtle and it's strong and it's dangerous. Okay? And the disease of alcoholism, some people, they, they take one sip and it's over. You know what I mean? It's like, that's it. And they're in trouble. And there's, and there's all sorts of havoc in their lives because of it. And, and that's what it becomes. And so there's a danger in it. And there need to be leery. And, and some of you have experienced that danger. I know some of your stories. And I know some of you struggle with it today. I know some of you have struggled with it historically. I know some of you have it under control. I know some of you have chosen, chosen to be just like Bill Hybels and say, I am not messing with that stuff because I've seen what it can do to people. You know, And all of that, we are the body of Christ. And we listen to what the scriptures say. And we say, it's important for us to be wise with our life, to seek the deeper blessings, not just the surface ones, but not to change the scriptures in order to represent some, in order to push my agenda, even if it might have a good cause behind it. Even if I'm wanting to keep someone safe, I shouldn't say something the scriptures don't. You understand? And so this is where uh, we go. Is the, there's a great question is, why would I do it if I, if, if, if it's, like if I don't need to? That's a good question, great question deeper question, more important question is this. What do the scriptures say? Okay? Because here's two ways that the gospel can go wrong, that we can misrepresent God. First of all, we can misrepresent what freedom is all about, and we can misrepresent the heart of God. My son, Colton, the youngest one, this guy loves candy more than I think I've ever seen anyone love candy. I mean, those of you who have hung out with him and have been around him with candy, you know, man, this kid loves candy. And, um, 
it's, it's really fun, actually, you know, and God has blessed them. The, you know, throughout scripture, um, God talks about like one of the ways of blessing is I'll, I'll overflow your vats with wine and your barns with grain and all of this. I think what he said to Colton is I'll overflow your candy jar with candy, you know, because when he goes out trick-or-treating or doing whatever he's doing, he ends up with all this candy, you know, and then he rations it throughout the year only because mom and dad make him. And his big brother is actually all about rationing it because he's not nearly as into it as Colton. But Colton, every day he wants candy from us and he asks, can I have candy? And we'll say, well, I'm not going to tell you what we'll say yet. First, I'm going to tell you the different responses that we could give him. There's different responses that we can give him. The first response is we can understand a bunch of candy. You have the, you have the tendency to get obese. It's not good for you, you know? Secondly is it can rot your teeth, you know, and it can mess up your teeth. Third is that you can get junk all over our couch, you know? Not that that ever happened or anything. And... Um, what we could do is just say, you know, in this house, we don't do candy. We don't do candy. And, you know, as parents, we have the right to do that. We have the right to say, we don't, we don't do candy, you know, because there's problems with candy, and it can cause problems. So we just don't want to have candy because it can cause problems. So no candy. Or I could say this, fine, you can have candy, but don't get it on the couch, and one piece, stay at the table, all right? Make sure you brush your teeth afterward. And I could say that, you know, or I could say this. I could say, Colton, I love that you enjoy candy, man. And I am so excited about the fact that now's the time of day you get to finally have your candy. Remember, remember, buddy, if you take it over to the couch, we're not going to be able to let you have the candy. And you can only have one piece because we don't want you to get sick and ruin your appetite. But you know what? Enjoy that candy, buddy. You know? What happens in Colton's heart, in his understanding of his daddy, between those three different places. See, in the first one, what it means, and I'm just going to go over here in the framework. Colton knows. He does know this. He knows that part of me fears that he'll do things wrong with his life, and he knows that's a healthy fear. And so he knows that these frameworks that God puts in place, that, or that Tim, dad, puts in place, that they're there in some ways to protect him. You know, even as a little tiny guy, he knows that. And, and so, okay, yeah, dad's trying to protect me. But if all he ever hears is the cold steel frame of do not do this, do not do that, then he's inside of this house and he's sitting at this table and he begins to wonder, I wonder if dad cares at all about me having a good time. I wonder if dad knows what it's like to be in my shoes. You know, he can do whatever he wants. But I wonder if he knows what it's like to be over here. And what I enjoy is, does he actually care about me enjoying life? And so often what happens when we represent God is all we represent is what God says not to do. And when we talk about what not to do and what not to do, we paint a picture of God that isn't a true picture of God. God says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he says that after he says, eat of every tree in the garden that I designed for you. It's awesome. It's the best tasting food ever. Enjoy it. I made it just for you. But by the way, don't eat it. Don't mess with that one. Okay? Don't touch that one. But everything else, enjoy it. That's the picture of God. Is he first the God of do not and thou shalt not? Or is he the first the God of do? Is the point of the gospel to restrict us or is the point of the gospel to free us? You know? And how we represent issues that have some sensitivity is very important because we're representing the character of God. And more important than just representing the black and white around any issue 
is representing the heart of God. Because what actually changes people is not the law and the is or the isn't. What changes people is when they experience God's heart for them and they begin to trust Him. And when they begin to trust Him and they begin to say, Dad really does want me to have fun. And Dad's kind of fun is really fun. So you know what I want to do? Instead of doing things my way, I want to learn to know exactly all about this thing that, of life that God has designed for me, that Dad has designed for me. Because when I go with Dad, it's a blast, you know? And that's where David gets with Psalm 119, where he's like, I long for the precepts of God. I want to know his decrees. They're life to me. They're joy to me. This is when the Holy Spirit's filling him up and he's yearning for the principles of God. The thing's not about what I can't do or what I can do. What it's actually about is I want to be with my dad and understand how he designed things because he's got a great plan for me. Understand how that works? We've got to be careful about how we talk about this stuff. I don't know. I mean, the dogma around some things where people get this real sensitive issue and they'll just go, dogma, like, bam, and they'll just slam people with the right or wrong on something. And that doesn't actually represent God and it doesn't help the kingdom. It doesn't get people to know God's heart. And I understand that lots of times it's because of fear of what could happen, you know? But God doesn't operate out of fear. It's the truth that sets us free. He operates out of love. And he lets us see what he wants us to do. And he represents his heart in that way. And then he warns us of the dangers. That's one interpretation of the gospel that goes false. The second interpretation that really can mess us up is when we talk about discipleship. And we teach people that discipleship doesn't cost us anything. Discipleship costs us everything. Everything. And sometimes what we teach is that, hey man, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, okay? He got pounded there. I got my ticket to heaven. He says all things are permissible. So I'm gonna go and do whatever I wanna do with my life. And I'll just, I'll just have fun and have a great time. And I don't worry about all that because Jesus died on the cross. That is not a picture of pursuing Christ. That's not a picture of being connected to him. The reason he paid The reason he died was to free me. Not free me to self-indulgence. Free me to actually engage in relationship with him because I was consumed with self-indulgence, consumed by my own sin. And when he dies on the cross, he frees me from the sense of condemnation. And now all of a sudden, I don't have an empty void inside of me to fill. I actually have a relationship with him. I'm free from all the chains of self-indulgence that the world seems to be consumed with. And now I'm free to actually follow him. So in a situation where I'm sitting across across the table from another person and this person wants to eat the, this person feels bad about the, the meat sacrificed to the idols and I'm sitting over here and I'm like, but I really like that meat, you know? What about what I want? If he has set me free, then he set me free to take this meat and to put it behind me and say, I don't need that meat. I have Jesus. I don't need that meat. And if the best thing in the situation is to not eat that meat, then I'm not going to eat the meat because dad knows what's best for me and for the family. I don't care about eating that. The meat's not a big deal. Jesus is the big deal. And sometimes we teach that, that discipleship doesn't cost us anything. And I know the struggles that many of you have, you know? But I also know that, that pity and allowing leeway for things that aren't wise just because of the the difficult struggles, that doesn't actually help. You see, when someone is getting drunk on Saturday night and it makes them tough to focus on, on Sunday, it's not my job to entertain so that it's easier for you to hang in there. Be bright and alert on a Sunday morning by being sharp on a Saturday night. 
You know what I mean? When it comes to, if I want my relationship with my spouse to go deeper, instead of just going and drinking every night with my wife, maybe what I should do is be praying and reading the word with her, you know? There are things that it costs us to receive the extra blessing. To receive the deeper blessings of discipleship, we have to be willing to sacrifice. Christ gave up his life, not because the command was to give up his life, not because it was the black and white, but because to get to the deeper blessing, he had to sacrifice himself. And for us, if we want the deepest relationship with Christ, it will cost us. And it's not about what can I get away with? What does God allow me to do? What can I get away with? Okay, cool. Now I know what I can do and I'll go and enjoy my life. No, my enjoyment comes from God and therefore it's not what can I get away with, but what can I, what can I do to get closer to him? And if that means picking something up, if that means getting rid of something, I don't really care because what I want to do is get closer to him. The whole thing is about God. So listen, this message, it wasn't about alcohol. Honestly, this message wasn't about alcohol at all. It wasn't. It was about faith. It's about whether or not we trust God. That's what it was about. Do I trust in alcohol to make me feel good? Do I trust in a black and white principle to make me feel justified? Or do I trust in the power of God? to give me all the joy that I need? And do I trust God that if I preach these scriptures plainly about what they say, that God's big enough to handle it? This is about faith and it's about trust. It's about true joy. It's about true love. It's about the difference between selfish greed and selfless acts of love. That's what this message is about. One of the, it's about that, that Romans 14 passage. This is anything done without faith is sin. It's about the other passage that talks about the meat sacrificed to idols. And it has this wonderful verse. And it's going to be the last verse. And it's in 1 Corinthians 10.31. And if you don't know this verse, you need to write it down and you need to memorize it by the end of the night. By tonight, you should have this thing memorized. Okay? 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. It's not about eating or drinking. The kingdom of God is not about whether you eat or whether you drink. It's not about what you eat. It's not about what you drink. It's about the glory of God. And I want to tell you one last thing, and we'll close right here. And that's that at this point in the message, this is where people say, oh, I get it. It's about balance. It has nothing to do with balance. Nothing to, balance is not a biblical concept. Balance is of Eastern mysticism. The yin and the yang, that's what balance is about, honestly. Balance is not in the scriptures. It's not about kingdom work. There was one guy in the scriptures who was incredibly balanced. He said he kept all the commands. He had a great life. He had lots of money. He was known as the rich young ruler. And Jesus said, throw your balance off. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Mess up the balance. And he turns and walks away because he chose balance instead of choosing Christ. Because when it comes to following Christ, this is what we get. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind, all of your strength and love your neighbor as you would love yourself. This isn't a matter of temperance, of moderation, of balance. 
It's a matter of full on, total, let go of everything else, pursuit of Jesus. That's what it's about. And whatever that means for any topic around the framework, let it fall into place. But it's not about what we do with money. It's not about what we do with time. It's not about what we do with alcohol. It's not about what we do with intimacy. It's not about what we do with any of that stuff. It's about what we do with Jesus and what we do with his word. And if we pursue him with our whole heart, then his spirit will consume us and will lead us into the ways of life and life abundant. Amen? Thank you. Let's pray.